a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast by Paul Meyer on the spoken word, episode four, May two thousand eighteen, newscasting. Hi, this is Paul Meyer, and uh, welcoming you to podcast number four. My very special guest today is Cameron Meyer. Cameron Meyer is the executive editor of the International Dialects of English Archive, IDEA. He's the vice president of Paul Meyer Dialect Services. He's a movie critic of great repute, best movie critic I know. See MeyerMovies.com for hundreds of his movie reviews, interviews, rank ordering of films, and lots of other things for movie scholars and movie buffs. His print journalism is published through Euclid Group Newspapers. He's a, a very much requested film festival judge and juror. For example, he's just come back from Paris, where he was judging the 2018 Film of Palooza Festival. He's a member of the prestigious Florida Film Critics Circle. Most importantly for today, perhaps, he is an alumnus of the University of Kansas Journalism Department, one of the premier journalism departments in the country. And most important of all for me, he's my son. Hi, Cameron. Hi. I hope I can live up to that introduction. <laughs> Very glowing introduction. Thanks for having me on the podcast. This is great. It's really nice to be chatting about stuff of mutual interest. So our topic today is broadcast news, news casting, as we call it. And this is, as I've been pondering the various aspects and uses of the spoken word over the many weeks since we began this podcast, I've kind of come to the conclusion, and I like your take on it, that perhaps of all the uses to which the human spoken voice is is put, could be this one thing, this one skill, broadcasting, newscasting. It's hard to think of, of a more important use of the spoken word, the human voice telling the stories of the day's events around the world. I think it, it compares with the the older art forms of political oratory and homiletics, you know, sermon delivery, theater, even theater, which I love, of course, spent my life in it, poetry reading, courtroom advocacy. But for the news media, the, the radio, the television, and more lately, the online delivery of the news seems to be more important than all of those in fulfilling its promise and its pledge to be the fourth estate, as it used to be called, protecting us from our protectors. So as the public seems to use print journalism for the news less and less and rely more and more on the spoken word of the news, it seems to me that this has, has put a, a greater emphasis, an even greater importance on the spoken word in that context. What do you think? Well, I going back to what you said just at the beginning, where you commented on news reading being maybe the noblest use of the spoken word. I don't know about that. I, I think you could certainly make a case for that, and that's probably what got me interested in journalism to begin with. I think if it's done well, it can be the noblest and most important use of the spoken word. I think you could also rank the other mediums that you mentioned, theater, film, any sort of art form that uses the spoken word to inform and inspire should certainly be ranked right up there with broadcast journalism. But yes, I've always thought that. That's what inspired me to get into journalism. 
And of course, you're a print journalist, uh, first and foremost. You didn't concentrate in the broadcast end of journalism, did you? Yes, that's absolutely true. And I want to be very honest about that. I graduated from the University of Kansas School of Journalism uh, back in 1995. At that point, the KU School of Journalism was one of the three best in the country, along with the University of Missouri and Columbia. I don't know where we rank now, but we're still pretty high. So very proud of the School of Journalism. But I was the print side. Uh, I was about to say the print and online side, but <laughs> back in 1995, that was just getting started. But within your core training at KU back then, and it's probably the same now, you were exposed to other disciplines. For instance, I took media law and media ethics. So you had a basic grasp of the world of journalism. But speaking specifically to what we're talking about today, broadcast journalism, it's true, I was not part of the broadcast journalism discipline. So in today's uh, conversation, I'll be the spoken end of things, perhaps mostly, and and you'll be the, the content and print end of things. But obviously they join because it's nearly... 100 years that we've had broadcast news. I think it was 1922 when the British Broadcasting Company started up. And I think they simply read from the newspapers at that time. So it's not a, not surprising, is it, that that we're still under the thrall of the discipline of print news, of the written word? No, it's not surprising at all. And your analysis of how broadcast journalism started is interesting because when a new genre or new medium starts up, it often just copies the previous one. If you look at the early films, they're very theatrical. The camera didn't move. They were simply filming something that was staged. So like film came out of theater and other art forms, broadcast journalism really had to come out of print journalism. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but, you know, for several years over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we've been talking about how print has been losing out uh, to television. And now, of course, we're talking about how television is losing out to online. So it's just another way of viewing how the different methods of getting the news evolve, how it always just seems to keep changing. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you and I have ever spoken about this, but my coming of age as a as a consumer of media in the early 50s was, in fact, closer to the beginning of broadcast news in 1922 than to the present day. I grew up listening to the BBC radio news. At, uh, we did not even have a television in our house at that time in the early 50s. So the BBC radio news was dominant and it's it's hard to convey what an important place that took in the daily lives of, of Britons and how it influenced, of course, broadcast news all over the world through the then fading British Empire. But we had these professional voices, these perfect people spoke in perfect diction. Their voices were, were resonant. They were perfectly at the service of their of their job. They weren't even named. They were perfect messengers of the message. Yes. Delivering impeccably written, well-digested, well-considered 
news from the previous 24 hours. Yes, and of course, that's a world I never knew. But it's interesting, you talk about what you grew up with, and that's informed the way you think of broadcast journalism today. The reason I wanted to get into journalism and the reason I wanted to get into print specifically is because when you know, I was in high school, 1986, 1987, that's only about 10 or 12 years removed from the Washington Post's coverage of Watergate. Right. So, you know, even though I was only a couple of years old when, when Woodward and Bernstein were doing their thing, that's fresh in my mind. You know, it was fresh in everybody's mind just a decade later. Print was still king in the mid-80s. Television was having a dent. I mean, of course, television has had a dent in print journalism since it came about, just like radio had a dent in it. But but print was still king, and that was still something that if you were interested in journalism, you wanted to get in into that um, much more then, I think, than now. Not saying anything against broadcast journalism. It was just print was such a big deal in the, in, in the 1970s in this country and in Britain. Yes. And, and, and so... With with broadcast news inheriting the tradition of fine writing and uh, objective reporting, that's that's where my heart is. In fact, I still to this day rely on the radio for my news. I listen to NPR news on the radio and I listen to the BBC six o'clock news every day. So I'm a real throwback, a real atavist to to those days. Yes. But let's remind ourselves and those listening to us of those values that have shaped us. I mean, we've, we've said that the broadcast news inherited the long tradition of print journalism, which is, to my way of thinking, and you'll correct me, I'm sure, a, a, a posture of detachment. It was scripted. It was elegant. It was deeply considered, well digested. It was literary. It, and it aspired, quite frankly, to eloquence. Do, do you see that as the, as the bedrock of this tradition? Somewhat. Um, print journalism has gone through uh, lots of different periods in its history where it was viewed as reputable, not reputable. Turn of the last century, you had yellow journalism. You had the rise of uh, scandal journalism where they were simply trying to sell newspapers. And then it swung back in the other direction, I think, in the 60s and 70s, where you had the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and these issues that just proved to the public that this is absolutely necessary. And you had Walker, Walter Cronkite trusted uh, every night, uh, Huntley and Brinkley. And the 60s and 70s in this country really were the pinnacle, I think, for broadcast journalism and print journalism, at least the big three among broadcast journalism. You could argue that with the multiplication exponentially of all of the sources we have now, it's easier to find the type of coverage that you want. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But I think as far as what you were just speaking to, the pinnacle in this country, the 1960s and 70s probably. And that's at its best. We look back and think, oh, it had eloquence. It had uh, fairness. It had accuracy. And that's what we should strive toward. You mentioned Cronkite. I think it would be fabulous to for me to play a little clip from Cronkite's announcement of Martin Luther King's death, April 4th, 1968. Let's listen to a little bit of this. Good evening. 
Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. So what did what did Cronkite have? Why was he so trusted, so beloved? He conveyed an air of confidence, impartiality. In today's society, it's very difficult to remain impartial if you're the network evening anchor because you're asked to do all of these other interviews and programs and internet, etc., etc., and you invariably reveal yourself. People understand what your politics are. And until Walter Cronkite's name was thrown around as a potential running mate uh, in 1972 for the Democratic ticket, I don't think a lot of people really knew that Walter Cronkite was a Democrat. Uh, And even after that, they didn't really care because he was always impartial, or at least he conveyed that. But there's a lot of performance there, too. He was just a very good newsreader. He was very good at ad-libbing, just very professional in the way he conducted himself and the way he read the news and reported the news. So he was just good at what he did. And yet he still foregrounded the story, didn't he? It wasn't about Cronkite. It was about the story. That's what I mean, I think, about him being professional and impartial. He realized that he had to speak the news. Um, It wasn't an editorial. It wasn't some sort of chat program. It was the news. And he was a journalist. He had to structure the news like there was a lead, who, what, when, where, why, how, and report the news. And I think a lot of people today... Uh, unfortunately, as there's been a blurring of the line between news and entertainment, aren't necessarily classically trained in journalism. Maybe they have a great personality and they're interesting to watch, but they're not shaping the news they read. They're reading news that somebody else has written. They're perhaps ad-libbing. They're perhaps engaging in banter that makes for good ratings but isn't necessarily the best journalism. I agree. Let's go back even uh, a couple of decades earlier to uh, Edward R. Murrow. Let's take a listen to this. August 24th, 1940. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid siren. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the Fields. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance, one single beam sweeping the sky above me now. People are walking along quite quietly. We're just at the entrance of an air raid shelter here, and I must move this cable over just a bit so people can walk in. For me, 
his aspiration to eloquence is key. He ad-libs as if he had written this copy. There's no filler, there's no ums and ahs. He speaks in whole sentences. So that aspiration to eloquence really impresses me. What, what, what do you, what do you get from Edward R. Murrow? It impresses me too. And he wasn't just a great speaker of the news, but I think he had a genuine interest in being on the scene and reporting it as accurately as he could. And your point about his ad-libbing, trying to sound scripted, I think some people today would view that as a bad thing. When you say, try to make something sound scripted, people have a negative view of that for some reason. And I think back then it simply meant that you were trying to sound professional. You were trying to have a smooth delivery. And for some reason, that's fallen out of favor. We talked before about how 30, 40, 50 years ago, you would try to have your spontaneous speech sound well-rehearsed, fluid, eloquent. And today, it's not just the reverse, but we're almost impressed when the scripted news sounds ad-libbed. You get a lot of jazzed-up, chatty-type delivery of the news, even when it's written, especially with a lot of local news, when they're fighting for ratings and they want to sound like they care about you and they're invested in, 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 in informing you. There are all these little things that people say before they go to a clip, things like, take a look at this, or what do you think of this, or you got to see this. I've actually heard newscasters say that, and I, I believe it's part of the script. They're told to make it a little bit more interesting or create a, a lead-in to a visual clip uh, to create a little bit of excitement. And, of course, everybody, when they get flustered or they don't know what to say, will put in the little filler words, well, or look, or like, or I mean, or what I mean, and um, and things like that. But we've also talked about how these sort of placeholders have changed. You know, when somebody says, in response to a question, look, well, that used to mean sort of an invitation for a fight. You would say, <laughs> Hey, look, I don't want to have to tell you this again, but, but, you know, it was, it was an aggression. And now it's just a little placeholder. It's a lead into a conversation. Uh, and it's less and less eloquent. Yes. I'm going to play you a clip now from one of my favorite BBC newscasters, Fiona Bruce, one of Britain's national treasures. And while she still has that old, smooth, well-written eloquence, you can hear that it's no longer the the early BBC style. Listen to Fiona Bruce here. This is a BBC News, January 12th, 2018. Good evening and welcome to the BBC News at 6. President Trump's visit to Britain next month is off. He had been due to attend the official opening of the new US Embassy in South London, but he tweeted he was not a big fan of the embassy and blamed Barack Obama's administration for a bad deal. Downey Street says an invitation for a state visit will still take place, though no date has been set. 
Meanwhile, comments allegedly made by Mr. Trump about some African countries have led to accusations that he's racist. Our diplomatic correspondent, James Landale, has more. That's so smooth, isn't it? It is. And while we're talking about all the things that are wrong with modern broadcast journalism, I think it's wise to point out that there are some very talented people in the business who have clearly devoted their lives to journalism. I think you can look at some of the journalists at what well, I don't know if we, we can still call them the big three, but CBS, NBC and ABC, who are, are, are quite good at what they do. Um, and I should throw in NPR and BBC and some of the other major ones, although it's rather sad. And we talked about this as well, that the names of the evening anchors of CBS, NBC and ABC just don't roll off the tongue anymore. We're just not as familiar with them as we used to be. It's Jeff Glore from CBS, Lester Holt from NBC, and David Muir from ABC. But those names just aren't household names to us like they were in the past. They're not the Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, are they? They're not the, they don't the Dan have, Rathers. They the, don't no. have that. Yeah. No. And perhaps this would be a good time to uh, to reference something I wanted to talk about, which is that people are getting less news from television. What we're talking about today is not just television, but it's broadcast journalism, it's performance of scripted speech. The fact that people are getting less and less of their news from television doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting less scripted news, but most people agree that they are. I wanted to turn to a Pew Research study that says that People get about 50% of their news in the United States from television, about 43% online. Now, the statistics just a year earlier than that put television at 57% and online at 38%. So there was almost a 20% spread between those. And now, or at least in this last Pew Research study, which I think came out last year, the spread is only 7%. So television is starting to battle for its life against online, against the Internet, which has narrowed the gap to only 7%. Radio is about 26%. Print is about 18%. So the battle that print was fighting for years and years is almost essentially lost when you look at large market shares. And then even within the television news market, I would conjecture, and I don't have a statistic in front of me to back this up, but everybody pretty much agrees that if you're getting your news from television, it's not always from scripted programs. It's from chat programs, MSNBC, Fox, these shows where people sit around and they chat at each other. They talk at each other. There's less and less of a person sitting down and reading the objective news of the day from a script. And then, of course... You have shows like The Daily Show, where people might think they're getting their news from The Daily Show or similar programs, but that's really entertainment. And then you could argue that that, in some cases, is actually more accurate than some things on Fox News. So it's really, really changed. The way people have, are getting their news just keeps evolving. I agree. Let's try to catalog the virtues and vices that the newscaster should aspire to and avoid. And let me get your take on this. It seemed to me that the the number one virtue from a newscaster, be it a Cronkite or Fiona Bruce or an Edward R. Murrow, 
is that they demonstrated a deep understanding and a thoughtful engagement with the text. It was as if these these ideas, these thoughts had been distilled through their exquisite brains. But the opposite, the vice, is, is to simply make the text audible without engagement with the ideas, thoughtless sight-reading, carelessly serving up the text hurriedly and casually. And here's my imitation of, of, of a style of casual delivery that I call throwing it at me. Uh, this is my imitation of that. In other news tonight, 10,000 people died instantly when a small tactical nuclear device exploded 20,000 feet above the small city of Whoville at a little after 6 p.m. local time. Reports coming in describe the familiar mushroom cloud and windborne radiation drifting at 10 miles an hour in a southeasterly direction towards the capital city of Megalopolis. President Jones will address the nation shortly. Meanwhile, law enforcement officials are encouraging people to carry on as normal and to avoid panic. That kind of (laughs) <laughs> throwing it at me is like a waiter serving me a fine meal from six feet away, you know? Yes. Oh, well, nobody wants to hear something like that. I would argue that if you get a news reading like that, it's not just bad for journalism, it's bad for ratings. So I think there's a double incentive to avoid simply bad news reading, bad performance. You sound like you're disengaged and you just don't care. Another virtue uh, and vice coupled together is the virtue for me is when the intimacy of the medium is invoked to speak to the listener one-on-one, like you and I are speaking to each other right now. I mean, in a sense, your ear is, is, is figuratively about six inches from my mouth. Mm-hmm. The, the, the correlative vice, of course, is, is the odious penchant for shouting that I hear so much of, you know, and I'll imitate that again. Today in Whoville, nothing at all happened. The townspeople went about their normal daily routine. There was a brief shower of rain around 2 p.m., which settled the dust, the most remarkable thing that happened all day long. Um, and it's just blaring at me. Yes, it's um, difficult to it's difficult to listen to. And uh, you would think that a trained journalist would be so in tune to volume, to delivery. Um, he or she has so much else to worry about regarding content that you'd think volume would be the first thing that would be accurate uh, or, or pleasing to listen to. And I, I have no explanation for that other than the rise of talk journalism, where you have four or five people shouting at each other, trying to get their point across. And when that part of the broadcast is done, it turns back to the main guy or the anchor or the newsreader. And they're so energized from the loud discussion they've just had that they have problems bringing it back down to a more comfortable broadcast journalism one-on-one tone. And that's my only explanation for that. I wish they would uh, just speak to me and not at me, as I as I say to the voiceover people that I train. Speak to me, not at me. Yes. It's, it seems, I mean, all of these vices could be subsumed under the rubric of getting in the way of the story. I'm, I'm, when I train actors, it's the same thing. Don't be in the way. Make yourself transparent, I say, so that... So that the character shines through and the, and the actor recedes into the background. Well, I want my newsreader to recede into the background. I, 
I love the BBC habit to this day of not saying, this is the news read by Paul Meyer. No, it comes, the, the announcer that follows the news tells us who read the news. But the, yes. the, re, the reader, him or herself, doesn't do that. It's a, it's a nice kind of modesty, a nice kind of posture of service to the art form. I think journalism these days can be very personality-driven, and I think that is what you were referring to. I mean, you look at MSNBC, people tune in almost as much to see and hear Chris Matthews as to actually comprehend what is being spoken. Brit Hume on Fox News. I mean, name whatever outlet you want to, and it's very often personality Driven, So I think maybe there's less and less thought that goes into how are we going to make the news the number one focus rather than the personality. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. I, I hate the sort of general wash of importance and hype that, that, that goes with that shouting. I do too. And it's worth noting that the broadcast itself is only as good as the writing. I mean, being more of a content guy, I'm sitting there and analyzing what's being said, at least when it's scripted. Um, you focus much more on performance, and I think the two are inseparable. Exactly. Uh, I think you, when, when you're talking about scripted news, you have to have something that's fair and accurate and well-written, and then it has to be delivered well, or it is pointless. I wonder if one were to read a, a written transcription of what one of these ad-libbed reporters delivers, whether it would engage the reader as strongly as the listener and viewer was engaged. Uh, I would. Th I would think it would not. Um, I, I think that the written word and the spoken word really kind of gone in different paths. So let's consider the uh, the last pairing of virtue and vice that drives me crazy when I hear the vice and love it when I hear the virtue. And that is, and I want your opinion about where on earth this comes from. I call it airline speak. When was the last time you were on an airplane and the cabin attendant uh, honored the operative words of the message. Uh, it goes something like this. Please remain in your seat until the captain has turned off the fastened seatbelt sign and the plane has come to a complete stop at the gate. Honoring all of the pronouns, the conjunctions, the prepositions, the auxiliary verbs. Where does that come from? Oh, it's hard to say. I think it might be as simple as just a misguided attempt to make something sound different or interesting. I think when you often hear things like that, it's from somebody who has read the same script so many times, and they're just searching for some way to make it interesting for themselves. But they forget, of course, that this person sitting out there, maybe not on an airplane, but most places, it's the first time this person has heard it. So they have an, a professional obligation to make it accurate every time. That is one explanation um, could simply be poor, poor performance. I heard something like this the other day and uh, struggled to, to transcribe it. 
Let me read it the way I think it should be read, first of all, and you tell me. On Thursday, the government released its long-awaited report on crime, which may do little to dampen recent criticism of police and the criminal justice system in general. It's not expected to be available in print for about two weeks. Now, that's the way I would read it. But the the, the reader, who will remain nameless, honoured all the two- and three-letter words. On Thursday, the government released its long-rated report on crime, which may do little to dampen recent criticism of police and the criminal justice system in general. It's not expected to be available in print for about two weeks. It's just, it's just harder to, to grasp the facts. It's harder to grasp the story when I'm being battered with those two and three letter connecting words. And it fades from memory very quickly. I have a hard time even remembering what you just said because I'm listening to this sort of sing-songy quality. Mm-hmm. If you, if if anything, you want to hit the words that are more important. Yes, Thursday. Not, not the words that not the words that are less important. No, Thursday. Government report crime criticism. That's those are the what I call the uh, the bones of the story. I agree. I, it's the, and it's the same with when I'm training voiceover people or doing voiceover myself. We we hear fish and chips, you know, <laughs> yes. as if fish and chips, are, it's a surprising combination, <laughs> hitting, the, hitting the conjunction. And I think the best journalism schools around the country st- still try to place an emphasis on performance. Maybe it's not always called performance, but Maybe it's simply called professional news reading. Yeah. But um, without a, a syllabus in front of me of the top journalism schools in the country, I don't want to level criticism at at everyone and suggest that this skill is disappearing because I think the best journalists still have it. But overall, because there's so many places to get the quote-unquote news these days, the average news reader who may not even be a journalist at all uh, tends to be a bit lazy at a lot of this stuff. Yes. I want to play you in one more clip, uh, which I love. I, I, I searched All India Radio hmm. and came up with this. President Ramnath Kovind has promulgated an ordinance to pave the way for providing stringent punishment, including the death penalty for those convicted of raping girls below the age of 12. According to the Criminal Law Amendment Ordinance 2018, in the case of the rape of a girl under 16 years, the minimum punishment has been increased to 20 years from the existing 10. I just love that lady. I've I've forgotten who she is, but she's so professional. Mm. You can hear what she's inherited from the BBC tradition, can't you? Mm -hmm. Not only only in her accent, but in, in the posture towards the story. Yes. Now, I'm probably going to betray my age here, but I am in grief, really, over not only the disappearance of the aspiration to eloquence, but what I perceive as the general mistrust of eloquence. I was very impressed by Alan Bloom's phrase in The Closing of the American Mind when he's talking about students who deliberately shun eloquence in their public speaking, as if it were, quote, hypocritical ritual bows 
to high culture, end quote. I thought he captured something there. And I, and I think of our politicians who deliberately avoid sounding statesmanlike and patrician-like, you know, and be this male, be this female. So this, what I call the disappearance of the aspiration to eloquence, is not a salutary th- thing for the, the uh, future of democracy, in my mind. I would agree, but I think that the emphasis on being more like the common man, being more like the regular Joe, the average Joe on the street, there's always been an attraction uh, to that. Um, you know, going back to, uh, well, going way back to, to, to Harry Truman and um, the sort of sense that the president is one of us. Uh, you went from FDR being very sort of patrician, sort of statesmanlike, to a Harry Truman being uh, very much a common guy, and people liked that. But you still have to speak intelligently. You still have to have fair and accurate content. And that's my biggest problem, is maybe you have a leader or a newsreader or anybody in the public eye who has a little bit of the common man about him. You know, maybe maybe that that's okay, but the eloquence and the intelligence doesn't have to disappear. And I think in some ways we're sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Of course we want people on television to look more like the average person as far as diversity and ethnicity and that larger debate, which we don't really have time to get into. But we can't extend that to a sort of lack of eloquence or a, a lack of of education or a lack of the core values that make the news important. And I, I think it is sad when you see eloquence or just simply good broadcast journalism disappearing for misguided reasons. I think that would be a very good place to uh, conclude our conversation. I'm sure you'll join me in expressing the deepest hope that that eloquence and that respect for education and mastery of facts, that impartiality will return once again, so that what I've considered to be the most important purpose to which the spoken word is put can regain its, what I call, former glory. Thanks for joining me today, Cameron. You're welcome. It's great to be here. And to my listeners, thanks for joining me. Join me again June 1st, when my guest will be world-famous linguist David Crystal. The intriguing linguistic sub-discipline called pragmatics will be among our topics of conversation next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>